it was tough. It was really tough. It, I, I think there's good things that come out of harsh pain. You get the pain, it makes you strong. Welcome to the Open IC, the show where we talk to the movers and shakers in M&A, the teams behind the deals and how the deals really went down. This show is brought to you by Fintel.io, the hiring and project platform for M&A and strategy professionals. I'm your host, Toby Liebsch. Today, I'm talking to Mr. M&A, Kison Patel. Kison is the face behind the popular knowledge platform M&A Science, and he's also running the M&A project platform Deal Room. Kison and I talk about his move from consultant to entrepreneurship and his view on where the M&A industry is headed. All right, Kison, thanks for coming on. Of course, we can talk about a bunch of topics. We can talk about uh, M&A training. We can talk about Deal Room. We can talk about your merch, t-shirts, your caps. So you're a man of many products, uh, many faces. But what I really find uh, most intriguing and most interesting uh, to talk to you about is that you have closer than most other professionals on the field, I would say. I really watched the M&A discipline evolved over the last 20 years. And that's really why, what I want to tap into to see uh, your perspective on the M&A world today and how it's been developing. So welcome to the Open IC. Sure. Happy to have the conversation. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Let's, let's jump right in because uh, I said almost 20 years. I know it feels like it's yesterday, but on your LinkedIn, since 2003, you started your M&A career path and M&A advisory. So what was it about the advisory business that kind of made you move into the M&A space? The advisory business, it's, it actually came very unique. Most people go to undergrad, get a finance econ degree and start in banking. That wasn't the case for me. I didn't even complete undergrad. I, I technically failed out of undergrad, just struggled with school at a really short tension span. Yeah. And when I got courses that were lecture based, that didn't work for me at all. I ended up getting into a real estate track where I thought, Hey, I can get a career in real estate, make the big bucks and I have to have the degree. And I was in my early twenties and I, I got this gig at a nice branded real estate firm here in Chicago, Baird yeah. Warner. And struggled like hell to sell houses. Nobody wanted to buy a house from a kid that was 21 years old. And I was frustrated. And I just remember like working part-time at a Subway franchise, just trying to make ends meet while I'm still living with my parents. Hmm. And I remember making sandwiches for people and be like, hey, by the way, if you're interested in renting or buying, here's my card. And what ended up happening was I met a guy who was selling commercial real estate. There's only one person in the firm that was selling commercial real estate. And he was nice enough to just have these conversations with me. And that's where I was really interested. I was interested in businesses. I, I liked the idea of selling businesses. And he was very encouraging around it. I ended up working with the little boutique M&A advisory practice. And that's where I really got my feet into M&A. They had a small little practice they were starting to build. Mm. where they were generating all these leads online and they had quite a few leads and, and the common element they noticed they were mostly Indian descent folks that they would <laughs> attract. So for them, their, their approach was why not hire this kid to go deal with these prospects? And I did. And I thoroughly enjoyed sitting down with these prospective customers and reviewing PNLs, helping them understand Mm -hmm. where the business is, where the opportunity is, where the value is and in, in, in relevance to what they're going to pay to acquire the business. 
And that uh, I worked with the firm, did a, a number of deals the first year. I didn't like that the firm didn't have a clear strategy. They'd buy or sell anything that they could get their hands on. So I, I wanted to start a practice with a clear focus. And I ended up leaving that firm a year later and then started my own solo. Yeah. Started tacking on a few people. And we ended up with a, a practice about five folks. We, we ended up focusing on hospitality. Uh, like hotel chains, yeah. I did some corporate work with Kimpton Extended Stay America, and then just through uh, the grapevine, heard about a bank that was for sale, and got an opportunity to work on that deal, which led to several other opportunities that were around these small financial institutions, whether it's wow. helping them acquire, helping them divest, or raise capital. And then yeah. that, that led my practice up until around 2007 when the economy flipped upside down. So what changed after the economy turned upside down? I went into that year with this anticipation it was going to be a record banner year for our company. And it turned out to be the worst year for the company. And it's one of those things. Do you sit there and, and pray things get better the next year? Or do you move on and do something else? And mm. that's what I ended up doing. I ended up downsizing the office. I basically operated as a single practitioner and I was working on some more like distressed deals. Basically I was working on some of these bankruptcy sales, some of the auctions, like broad auction processes that were happening and representing a handful of clients, but it, I was exploring the technology area. I was interested in that space. I just seen all this, um, emerging tools that were coming out social media was was great getting its traction yeah. so that was about 2008 i guess yeah myspace facebook yeah so i was, I was interested in it and I, I remember too it was around that time around 0506 I, I wanted to create like this emerging private equity fund yeah. and in structuring that model you need a good management team because ultimately investors, LPs look for a management team that have experience investing and exiting and, and can show or validate that there's some opportunity to get a return back if you give these people money. So you need that. And I, I remember putting together a team and everybody wanted a slice of the pie. And you know, by the time you put a, a good management team together, there wasn't much pie left for, it just seemed tough. I was young at the time. I was probably 26 years old. I said, Hey, this tech industry, it's more accepted for a young yeah. person to get in there and be successful. And so that's why I got there. And yeah, I remember I, I did this deal or worked on this deal where I was trying to buy one of these rehab clinics in Michigan. It was like yeah. a methadone rehab clinic. And I had it under contract and I was trying to flip it to, I think the company was CRC Health. It was like a publicly traded company. The deal didn't pan out because my financing fell out with the events that were happening leading up to the recession. But when I was doing the diligence on this larger publicly traded company, going through their S1, one of the thing I, things that caught my attention was that they paid, I think, like $6 million for a portfolio of 100 dot-coms. Wow. And in, in trying to assess what the strategy was, essentially, they created this lead gen network for all these rehab clinics that they had across the country. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I started digging around that. That's really interesting. Started looking at some of these ways you create ad models on these, these websites and realized the finance ones actually have 
a much higher cost per click payout than these other dot coms. Yeah. So I started buying basically finance keyword dot coms. I'd buy a bunch of them. At one point, I, I had about 500. What did you buy? Oh, there's some guys still like and capital is one of the favorite. We had like list of funds.com. I think I still have that one. Anything. There's like a lot of private equity related one, just a bunch of them. We still have, a, I think maybe 50 or 75 mm. of the ones that good ones, like findbanker.com, things like that. So the idea, and I remember I just had a few at the time in the early beginning, but I, I put a blog post up and back then you could just write a script where when you reload the page, it would show you a different blog post out of your little inventory. Yeah. Uh, and so it was a really basic script, but it basically tricked Google into thinking we're constantly putting new content. So then all of a sudden these keywords domains would rank really high. Uh, so it evolved. We basically set up one of these big open source platforms. We we're using like LifeRay and another one, Alfresco, and had it powering 200 websites that we had this big repository of all this content. And based on the keyword of the domain, it would find relevant content to display to the user. And we'd have all these AdWords and we're generating this revenue and it was growing and growing. Uh, then one day Google updated its algorithm and everything like, cleared everything out, YouTube. all gone. <laughs> Game over. Yeah, the good old black hat times, those are over now. Yeah, that, yeah, that was like early. I think that was around that 07, 08. And, yeah. And then the economy crashed. Does that change your perspective on the current bull market? Having been I'm there? I'm confused by this market. I can't figure it out. It just does. <laughs> We've had a great run before. And then bad news is, is makes its impact, but people get over it. And then it gets even um, crazier. It's just been even a more aggressive run. Yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. I don't know. Crazy gold rush right now, it seems. And you always seem like you feel like you're missing out on all on everything and all the new things, but um, you never know. <laughs> From this fall. point, looking back, that's the one thing I learned is to buy things when nobody else wants it. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's it. Simple strategy. Buy low, sell high. If you want to buy low, buy when nobody else wants it. And right now, I don't know. Everything seems so inflated. So I it's it's time to, to hang out and wait. <laughs> <laughs> then you always feel like you're too late for everything. That's 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 the that's the catch in it. And walk me through the signs of M and A because after when you rolled up your consultancy, that was about 2012. So you started Deal Room in 2011. So I guess that was also the time when you slowly faded out of the consultancy business. Yeah, and like I said, I was just doing stuff myself. I had these key clients. I'd work with them, and it was project by project at the time you might see like a hotel chain doing yeah. a bankruptcy auction one of the big investment banks are handling it i'm working with a, a group of buy private individuals yeah it was yeah. some fun stuff you, you get a group of accountants that pool money together yeah. and next thing you know they can buy a 20 million dollar hotel asset so technically you were actually an m a freelancer if you will in, in today's yeah. technology yeah i didn't have an office i just i had the relationships i helped them and you're there i like, I like the hunting i love doing the buy side work yeah yeah how do you get your clients then because upwork and all these kind of uh, platforms they only pop up later so how do you acquire your clients back then when, when we ran that practice in those early days before the recession it was all online they had all these websites that you could just post businesses for sale yeah i think there was one there's biz buy sell was the one for really small businesses mm -hmm. but then there was one merger network i don't know if they still exist but they were 
a little beefier, but it was interesting because you'd get so much interest through these online platforms that mm-hmm. for us, it was all about qualifying as quick as you can, especially if you put a bank for sale. If you put a bank for sale and list it in that mm-hmm. sort of public view, yeah. you get everybody. You have contractors that they think they can buy a bank and loan themselves money. You have just different types of business folks. You have drug dealers. You got yeah. all walks of life. Yeah, it was interesting. It was interesting. But that that's really it was the one thing we did well was leverage online platforms to generate leads. And then we operated a newsletter. I remember back then, I think we first started this newsletter over fax. Wow. We just mass faxed people this newsletter. Hey, here's yeah. teasers on the deals that we're working with. And that, that worked really well to start building this client list and keeping in yeah. touch with them. Then eventually we moved it to email. And then when I, when we downsized the firm, I just, I already had the relationships. So it wasn't yeah. so much of going out for an, and I was focused on buy side stuff. It was just, yeah. Hey, here's a big bank that's managing an auction process. Okay. And like I said, a lot of it was distressed and yeah. I'd work with a group of buyers to, to okay. purchase those assets. Yeah. What kind of deal volumes are we talking about? It was just like deal by deal. It just depended what came up. It could have been, I like the whole thing. I wasn't doing many bank deals at that time. The bank deals, I think I did one or two during that period. That was just, again, total distress sale. One of those things leading up, they're asking for over two times book value. And then here I'm trying to get deals done for them. That was just under one time book value. And then we did a number of them. I think there was a one... BP, they divested of all their retail locations. I got to work on some of those. Yeah. So, but a little bit, I, I was still really passionate about tech. I wanted to do something tech. Yeah. I kept jumping around. I kept looking for things I can invest in over there. And the one thing I, I remember when building out those websites and doing a lot of this custom development, got my feet wet into how do you build actual product? And I, I was familiar with it before, because even running that practice, we built our own data room. So I remember that the data rooms were so expensive that they yep. charge you per page. It was like a dollar twenty-five, something ridiculously high. And it made no sense. And I was just curious. I was always curious in, in the tech side ever since being a kid. My father got a computer in our house, like a Tandy TX1000 back in 1989. So I've always grew up around with, with computers and I was, I was always interested in it with the technology. And I think we first started using like an FTP site, started using that for file transfer. And then I worked with some developers to build something, but it wasn't anything to, to brag about. It was a, a tool we created to have some downloadables off the website, but then start using it as a, basically our own data room. And then um, when I started that, that building out those custom websites, now we're actually building custom applications what what intrigued me was we came to a point where we had a group of people working on it and we needed to manage things and we started doing an excel and struggled with that because one excel tracker turned to two excel trackers turned to three excel trackers yeah yeah. now we have stuff and i couldn't align this team around priority I, i think exploring solutions another person that ran a development shop introduced me to these project management tools and that's where we started adopting i think we started with like jira back then 
Yeah. It was just like a basic, it started with bug tracking in the beginning that sort of, they get more dynamic or you can prioritize the, those because you couldn't even prioritize those lists back then. And, uh, but I was intrigued by it. I was like, this is actually really, when I saw the productivity increase from where we're managing this on Excel and it was very static and it was difficult to align the teams, especially in different time zones on priorities. Yep. And we moved to this type of project management tool and Hey, it's clear as day what our priorities are. We're looking at the same list. In fact, it's in a descending order of priority. If priorities shift, it doesn't matter. When you wake up in the morning, whatever's on top of the list is what you should be working on. Yeah. It drove efficiency up so much and I valued it. And it made me reflect and think, why didn't we have this in M&A? As you start progressing, working from small deals to larger and larger deals, the diligence process becomes beefier, more complex, but we, we didn't have that kind of project management workflow. Yep. And that's where that, that evolved into this inspiration for doing deal room. Um, I think there's a lot of just general founder challenges or first time founder challenges that yep. came about because you, you had this idea that, Hey, here's a problem to solve, but then the human nature is to complicate things. Yeah. Yep. So in starting with building an outline of what we're going to build. Next thing you know, you start tacking on more feature ideas and more feature ideas and you got a hundred things you want to, this product to do. And then you go back, dial it back and say, All right, what's like the first thing to build. And we, at the time I thought, Hey, I should build a very front end of the process, this sort of matchmaking stuff, help buyers and sellers connect and then progress and build the rest of the, the functionality out. So we went to market in 2012 with more of this marketplace type of model, which we ran it for a year, we acquired about 1300 users, 200 deals posted and came to the realization that we build a highly sophisticated dumpster for deals. I went back to the drawing board, we went back to the drawing board with the new face and took more of an objective approach to understand our prospective customers and their pain points to know exactly what we're solving for. Yeah. And when we did that, we do it through these series of interviews that were just Qualitative interviews designed to be objective, which is a whole art and science and a whole other talk track to, to, to get into. But what we concluded after about 40 of these interviews, looking back at the pattern, people have a problem sourcing their deals. People have a problem managing their deals. And that's when it really got complex. And that's where it, it got us focusing similar to that project management type of inspiration, but really right on this Excel tracker during diligence that gets emailed around probably 13 times, yeah. Yeah, a lot of back and forth comments, trying to have a conversation in Excel tracker. So we really honed in on that and just focused on that and prioritized it. We built that solution out, took it to market with banks, learned pretty quickly that banks aren't super motivated to be innovative. Once they kind of get their engagement, everything gets passed down to the junior bankers Yeah, and the, the, for them, like, they're not incentivized to optimize the process or anything like that. Yeah. And it's an uphill bottle. The culture is not great when you look at most of these investment banks. And the only thing they're looking forward to is perks from their vendors. So that's why the culture there is to like spend money, wine, dine folks and, and try to get a sale back. They don't really care about differentiators, feature functions. So we realized that, but we were fortunate enough by accident, we got a deal that was with a corporate going through an IPO and found our, our market for early adopters was actually these corporations, most of the time doing buy side transactions. And 
we evolved around that. We found it really great to work with these clients. They were very interested in solving the problem. They didn't care about what you buy them treats or anything. They just wanted value. So you provided value, you build a healthy relationship. And then we started continuing to problem solve. We went from problem solving the diligence process to mm -hmm. the natural progression was an integration. Yeah. We came up with this nice model of creating not only continuity between diligence integration, but this capability to run a parallel process of integration planning while you're doing your diligence that can essentially enable your functional leads to do diligence and yeah. integration planning at the same time. And then we added pipeline functionality and became a full lifecycle management solution. Yeah. You're probably the first founder that I hear talk about corporates as early adopters. <laughs> but do you think your background and advisor, you work with some large companies at that time, that helped you to roll out that solution? Because the, the natural path for founders and startups is usually to go to other startups and SMBs and to sell to them because they're just smaller. So how did that work for you? Why do you focus on the corporates so early and how did we did focus on these small banks early? And even early, we're focusing on, on small corporates. There's a lot of biases that you have to overcome as a founder. And one of them was I had a background doing front-end advisory work in the M&A yeah. process. So my natural gravitation was towards the investment banks. Yeah. And had I been more objective and took the time to say, okay, let's analyze the different cohorts of prospects in this market, in this industry, I would have saw, hey, there's this group of bankers, there's a group of lawyers, there's all these yep. different service providers, consultants, et cetera. And then there's these corporate firms, acquires, there's private equity acquires. I really would have spent the time to objectively took that same approach to where I've done the interviews, understand their mm -hmm. pain points, and problems, and then get a sense of where's the problems that are actually worth solving for. Yeah. You know, there's big problems. So that was one of the things that we learned over time is you yeah. got to have that robust feedback loop so that you really understand what problem you're solving similar to the solution, mm -hmm. you need to keep that tight feedback loop as you introduce a solution. And while you're introducing that solution, it'd be beneficial to validate your go-to-market because that was another yeah. huge mistake we made was we started copying the go-to-market of the encumbrance, these old school virtual data rooms. Yeah. And that was a terrible idea. Like we can't compete with them. We can't have these sales reps out with unlimited expense cards, taking people yeah. out. And it, it's, wasn't an efficient model. It's cost of sale was ridiculously high. Now it's everything shifted. It's all cloud delivery, a lot of marketing. Did you bootstrap a deal room or did you take investment? I, we don't have any outside investors. Yeah. Do you, you like pain? <laughs> because I feel like you, you had this advisory role and of course that's, yeah, it's going to be a hard job, but it's also quite comfortable. You can make good money very fast. Of course it can be exhausting too, but then bootstrapping a SaaS business in, in its essence, that's the hardest long-term most rewarding uh, path but short-term the hardest path so so how was that for you we did try to raise money we went out trying to raise money i had one term sheet was terrible and i thought all right because I, i remember i put two hundred fifty thousand to get things going i was going went through that pretty quick especially through that first big iteration of a product that didn't work out and i went to market i was trying to raise another 250 500 and a terrible term sheet and said all right i'm just gonna put another 250 into this yeah And then you, you, keep, you keep putting your money into it. And it's just, that's what it was. I was fortunate I had other investments and that was cash flowing. I kept putting more money into it. It, it was tough. It was really tough. It, I, I think there's good things that come out of harsh pain. You get the pain, it makes you strong. So yeah. for us, having a tough time in the market made us stronger. It allowed us to create our ability that we have today with that feedback loop. 
Yeah. That's the way we build and the way we problem solve and that capability of problem solving that stemmed from a lot of that pain. And then one thing that was really interesting is we uncovered this massive problem in the industry. And that was this industry we realized was so siloed and disconnected that there was this complete lack of standardization and best practices. When we worked with these different corporates, no two corporates thought about M&A alike or had similar processes. Looked at it, acted on M&A, completely different, all highly inefficient. And that's where we took that same approach of qualitative interviews, feedback. At the time, a friend of mine in marketing, this is probably around 16, 17, and he's, hey man, you should do a podcast. And I was like, what the hell is a podcast? Don't worry about it. It's going to be the next big thing. You just got to do it. And essentially married the idea of taking that same approach of getting feedback. In this case, creating a platform that enabled M&A practitioners to be able to share their lessons learned, then capture it, document it. And we've been doing that for five years and it led to building a whole media business yeah. where we've to date published 350 eBooks, blogs. We published two books and our Agile M&A is the signature framework based on Agile principles. Mm -hmm. We were fortunate enough to be able to do case studies with Google and Alassie and how they use these Agile techniques with great success in their M&A. But so it's really interesting how that created this whole education side of our business where today we run academy, all yeah. different kinds of programs around teaching best practices. And now the business is, is shifted. I don't like getting into a process where it's competing against features and functions with other product. It's yeah, like, yeah. no, we have this cap unique capability around incorporating both the best practices and we evolve the technology around the best practices. So if you're not willing to be change oriented and continuously adopt these best practices yeah. we're not a good fit so how's that, uh, that how's that structured that's awesome because usually what, what happens is that that these media arms are are built as marketing need marketing necessity for the business but but you seem to have developed it quite gradually and naturally in a way so how is that that transition today so, so is it all under the deal room company or do you have separate entities now set up i, I think m a science is really becoming the umbrella brand Because we, yeah. we started as a podcast back when there was maybe five podcasts cover, covering M&A. If you look today, yeah. there's over 50 and we yeah. rank right at the top. So that there's recognition with that brand. There's association with a lot of the top level practitioners that we yeah. featured on the, the podcast. The way we've continued to create business lines, and it's been that same problem solving approach. We get feedback. We see a problem. We go out and solve it. Yeah. Today's problem is recruiting, hiring talent. It's yeah. it's the huge demand because everybody's doing deals. They, there's just not enough out there. What I like about your business and similar, similar with companies like Wall Street Races, tackling kind of the, the early development also of M&A professionals. And, and you don't really have the traditional M&A background as we just, just discussed, but what is it that has changed or what are the skills that are now most in demand? Has, has it changed or has it essentially been the same, but now it's just packaged differently? It is changing in some ways. I, they, what it is, we've always had this finance focus. Everybody's looking for the modeling chops. Yeah. And that's still there. That's still there. But there's this realization that there's much more to it. When we actually look at what generates value, that's a whole different skill set. We're talking about project management, change management. Yeah. And that's what's becoming a greater emphasis and a greater demand around. So that that's where I, I, I think you're seeing companies that are emphasizing that more. They're putting a much bigger emphasis on integration 
earlier in the process. They're realizing when you look at the big fallouts and why value wasn't realized or the anticipated value wasn't realized on a deal, it wasn't because of the model. It was because of people issues. And how do you overcome that? So that's a totally different skill set. And that's what's becoming in demand. Yeah, that's 100%. I can, I can definitely also underline that. We really at Fintown really talk, yeah, focus on, on the finance side of things. But the question we get all the time is, okay, do you also do integration? And then the project management side of things is, is something we run to all the time. And, and that's really been something that, that we yeah, learned to also focus on and looking at our talents so that if they can't put up a project, if they are late to meetings, if they can't communicate properly with the client, they're out because that's just a, such a basic necessity nowadays for any practitioner. Yeah. It's a natural adjacency, and I think that's yeah. a good way to look at it is, hey, we're solving this problem. If we can identify another problem, it's around your company. What you develop is a capability to problem solve. Yeah. And But keep to the adjacency. And that was yeah. a problem I had. We jumped in our early days. I'd you'd do this deal. I see the next shiny thing or industry and jump over. Yeah. You're starting all over again. But if you can do it the right way, it'll actually compound yeah. and make your overall business. That really helped me in talking to you also, because I was like, when I looked at your profile and we've talked a bunch before already, I, I always got the feeling that, man, that, that, that guy is doing so many things. And then he's also selling like hustle on his website. <laughs> What's going on there? There's just so much stuff. But I think the, like you describing that story also, yeah, it just ties in so naturally together. Well, think, and, think about community. Yeah. Think about yeah. community. Because you mentioned like the Wall Street Oasis. That's what drives their business is they have yeah. this community of junior bankers that can empathize and relate with each other with some of the the pain and struggles that they're going through and that's what really creates this robust community yeah i think it's similar for us like we've created a community around corporate m a yeah Uh, there's different pieces you got the banking side consulting side and they have their own networks but corporate m a seem to have been a void for a long time and that's where the goal is and they're the ones that care. They're the ones that really look at their industry or look at their own personal practice to yeah. develop and evolve. So they're, they're hungry to learn. It's interesting that you mentioned that they're hungry to learn because, of course, the uh, cliche is often that when you talk to those corporate M&A people that they always have to know everything already. But then when you dig deeper and you actually talk to them, you realize, no, no, they're just as hungry to learn as anyone else. There's just a very hard shell of this finance exterior that you have to break through first to actually get to the person behind to the real struggles because uh, it's just the same struggles as any other space, really. Princesses yeah. and goldfish. That's uh, yeah. the way I, we learned in the industry. You got ones that think they know everything and don't want to yeah. listen to you. Then you just have goldfish that don't have attention span. If you get a practitioner that takes this serious, they're really, truly hungry to learn. There's so yeah. much to learn in M&A. To really, I'm still trying to keep up yeah. constantly. I'm probably... I don't think even 5% of what's to learn out there yeah. about M&A. Do you see a generational difference there too when the, with the practitioners nowadays? Generational difference. I think the younger ones are hungry. We really enjoy having newer practitioners come on our platform and teach. And we're talking about even two to five years to have them come on because it's fresh in mind. Typically, they're motivated to learn. And for them, they're in some in a lot of ways, um, more qualified to actually teach others yeah. because they it's fresh in mind. And in fact, I've seen them get into the details where they know the right order hmm. to teach different concepts and these little nuanced details because they've just recently learned it. They're still actively practicing 
Or you may have another practitioner that did it 20 years, or I've seen some of these programmers where it's like they haven't actively done deals in 10 years. Like yeah, where, yeah. What can they possibly be teaching? Yeah. They'll teach concepts and theory, but in terms of practical how-tos, that's lacking. Yeah. yeah. How, how are you dealing with other stakeholders? Because you, yeah, people could argue that you're taking off people's jobs away, right? You're competing with... By teaching the professionals or the, or the corporates, you're taking the job of some consultants in a way, or you're, you're taking this position of some consultants, you're competing with internal stakeholders. Obviously, if you introduce certain management tools that take certain internal stakeholders, maybe makes them scared in a way. How do you deal with that? Because everyone always wants a piece of the pie. That's something you also mentioned earlier in the beginning of your career that happened when you try to set up a fund. But how do you deal with that? Do you get a lot of heat from other consultancies, especially from smaller ones? Not really. I, I think... Our ultimate goal is to help organizations build world-class M&A function. And everyone wants to do that so they get to capture the value in their deals, that they can uh, be effective when they do M&A. Yeah. That, hey, you, you do these deals, you anticipate value, it's in your investment thesis, it's in your mind, and then when you look back a year later, did you actually capture that value? And we yeah. still got our fabled high failure rates in the industry. How can we drive the efficiency, the practice? And that's what's unique about the industry. It's not a bunch of quantitative data we analyze to optimize. m and is all about how, how do we create these practices to allow people to prioritize their goals, be aligned around them, and execute effectively. Yes, our business is around helping to enable the in-house capabilities to execute M&A better. But then when they still work with these resources, they're still there. They're still there to help. I think that's driving them to be more efficient. Now, I remember early days when I talked to consultants about what we do and try to partner with them, I got the, the, the big X is, no, and it's always want to learn, right? Why not? All that inefficiency you're talking about, we actually bill for that. Yeah. So I, I don't, you're working against my quota here. If yeah. my goal is to get billable hours for my revenue goals. And that was the thinking, but it's shifting. I think more it's, it's shifting to these sort of fixed models around the value that they're providing. And that would ideally flip things around and encourage them to be more efficient. We're starting to see that. But I, I, I think there's just the nature of M&A. When you're doing a deal, there's a lot of resources you need to get the deal done. And if you don't have them, you're still going to go out and work with some of these external uh, providers to be able to get the the help you need when you need it. Yeah. But there's the industry itself does need to be more efficient. Like we can't keep doing these deals and their steps are getting missed that real, the end result isn't there in terms of the value creation and everyone's focused on getting their piece of the pie. We're spending about 5% of a, a given deal in terms of paying out fees to the bankers, yeah. consultants, lawyers. There's a lot of efficiency that we can create in this industry, which I'd look at as just, Massive opportunity, massive opportunity to shorten timelines, save costs, but then amplify this focus on the value creation post deal and produce better results, a better people experience. So you have less people that have to go through this traumatic change management, get frustrated, blow up, quit, and leave with a bunch of value. But we can actually create this efficiency that creates a better people experience. So people are part of the journey. They're excited about the goals to achieve with this aligned vision that it makes everyone happy and a lot of value gets created.
I think that's the same wave that we're also trying to ride, to ride with Finta and, of course, just riding the freedom revolution in, in the M&A world. And that's, I think, the most exciting shift happening. I think it's all that because it's the capacity. Yeah. You just you go up and down with M&A. It's not consistent. So when you need people, if you can get it in a short time frame, you can build your bench quickly and provide a platform to do that. I think you guys got on to something. Thanks, man. Of course, you have a much bigger platform than we have right now. But if anyone hasn't heard of you yet, where can they find you and, and what's the best way to reach out? MAScience.com. Anybody interested in learning all things M&A? And yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah. That's like the only social media I'm using now, but it's just Kisan, K-S-O-N, Patel. You have to pick one, man. There's just so much going on. I've been trying to get in Twitter lately, but man, there's so much going on. I can barely keep up. It's, it's just difficult. <laughs> I, I haven't found my crowd on Twitter. Everybody tells me that you should go on Twitter. You'd be great at Twitter. But I get on there. I'm just like, this is too much. It's not the most positive tone on Twitter. Let's put it that yeah, way. In the VC market, they're pretty, pretty out there on Twitter. A lot of crypto people, of course. But there's a lot of silent M&A followers I see. There's not so many people that are really active in the M&A space. That's something that might be, maybe it's the next big thing for us. <laughs> yeah, I guess they, I, I like my meme threads, but I don't yeah. know. Awesome, Kisan. Thanks so much for my time. My pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in the OpenIC. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also leave a review. That really helps. And connect with us for feedback on fintalent.io. See you next time.